you have Aaliyah, let me invite you to go with me back to John chapter 9 this morning. Back to John 9. Last week as we started our time together in the Word, I shared a story with you from when Melinda and I used to live over in the White House uh, in the middle of the parking lot. I don't know if it's just because it's Thanksgiving and I'm nostalgic or if it just is what keeps coming to mind, but I'm going to share another story about living over in the White House with you this morning. Um, when I used to have a dog, um, it's kind of a neat dog. It was a Beagle Husky mix, um, rather interesting looking dog, had blue eyes, uh, named Sierra, and uh, that was pre-kids, although kids shortly followed. It's like the classic young couple uh, choice, I guess, and uh, so we had our dog, then we had our kids, and um, Dog had it great, you know, we're taking care of Sierra, much like many of you with your pets and probably spending more than we should on an animal and caring more than we should about an animal. But we had our dog living over there in the White House, neighbor to Pedro at that time. Um, when we had the fence, they would run back and forth across. I don't know that they necessarily got along, but Pedro and Sierra were neighbors. Um, if you haven't also noticed at Bible Baptist Church, we have a little bit of an issue with geese. In fact, it came up in Sunday school this morning in our class. Somebody's like, hey, did you notice that the geese are over on the field at East? Like, that's a win. I mean, I guess it's a loss for them, but it's nice for us um, because on any given day, you can look out at the soccer field or the retention pond and see a ridiculous number of geese, and uh, they let you know that they've been there. They share their visit with you. Sierra really appreciated the fact that the geese visited the soccer field. And while Sierra, living at the White House, had a nice fenced-in yard where she stayed in the yard, she was fed, she was taken care of, her needs were met, life was good, she always yearned to get out of that fence to go to the soccer field to visit where the geese had visited. Why? I don't know. That makes absolutely no sense. And when you come back, having visited the soccer field, um, I don't want to let you into my house at all. You will encounter the hose first, and then we'll still debate as to whether or not you get to come in. Because Sierra did not like to stay in the fenced-in yard. She didn't like to stay in this place of security, of protection, of care, of provided meals. Okay? She constantly liked to leave. You know, when we look at Scripture, while we might not use that kind of illustration or language ourselves, the Bible does paint us as sinners in our rejection of God, having left his good care, starting with Adam in the Garden of Eden and continuing ever since then, as going to create messes of life, going to yield destruction and devastation from sin in our lives. And yet when we come to John chapter 10, what we're going to see this week and next week, Lord willing, is that we have a God who sent his son Jesus Christ to be a wonderful shepherd who will also serve as the door to the sheepfold, who will exclusively give entrance to a place of care, of protection, of security, of provision. And yet, we live in a world that constantly wants to look for other ways to get in or enjoys getting out. 
wants to have autonomy, wants to have independence, wants to reject the exclusivity and security of Jesus' care, wants to say there's lots of ways to God, and basically I get to choose what those are. John 10 provides us a wonderful reminder for believers and an invitation for unbelievers to see God's merciful love on display. To recognize that the whole reason God sent his son was to provide life, and where we landed at the end of our scripture reading is to provide abundant life, eternal life. As we work through the text this week and next week, we're going to see the exclusivity of encountering God and the security of having been saved by God. Let me remind you of where we've been now for several weeks as we've been in the Gospel of John. We reminded ourselves the first week that God communicated with mankind through a person, Jesus Christ. It's a wonderful mercy of God. He didn't just send, here's another prophet, here's another messenger, here's another book. There came a day where God in his mercy, God in his wisdom, took the eternal word who created everything, and the word was made flesh and dwelt among us, John said in John chapter 1. God communicated to us through a person, Jesus Christ, but he communicated to us for a purpose, belief on Jesus Christ, faith on Jesus Christ. Not rejection of him, not doubting him, not questioning what other ways are there beyond him, but in our pluralistic, tolerant, anything goes kind of world to say, Jesus alone, belief on Jesus alone, is our connection to God. So God communicated through a person, Jesus Christ. God communicated for a purpose, belief. And then we've been seeing now across the last two weeks and this week, God communicated through pictures. These I am statements that Jesus makes. I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. And today, this statement where he says, I am the door. I am the gate of the sheepfold. We're going to see, Lord willing, again next week where he says, I am the good shepherd. But I do believe these two statements are worthy of distinct consideration and even just due to the amount of material between John and 9, 9 and 10 are worthy of us spending these two weeks on them. Today, as we look at Jesus saying, I am the door of the sheep, we're going to do so through two predominant thoughts in the text. One, we're going to begin looking in John 9 at an illustrative miracle. Once again, I find it fascinating uh, that prior to this message being given, a miracle occurs. This isn't the first time we've seen this. If you were with us when we were in John 6, what does Jesus do? He feeds 5,000 people with these five loaves and two fish. I mean, an incredible miracle. And yet the Pharisees, the religious leaders, are looking for another sign. And Jesus is like, you don't need another sign. I am the bread of life. You need me. You don't need another physical meal. You need spiritual food. I am the bread of life. Here, in very similar fashion, the context of these I am statements starts with an illustrative miracle in John 9, and then when we get to the first I am, we're going to see secondly, near the end of our time together, a restrictive message, an illustrative miracle followed by a restrictive message. If you would, look with me at John chapter 9, 
As we come to verses 1 through 7, notice that this miracle is driven by an interesting question. You can glance as I kind of summarize it for us, but it's driven by an interesting question. There's a man here who's been blind from the time that he was born. And a question comes up here to say, what what caused this blindness? Is it his sin or is it his parents' sin? Why does this man have this physical malady that he's unable to see? It must be some fault of his own or it must be some fault of his parents. It's a very interesting question theologically, certainly practically as well. It's a question, frankly, that still occurs to this day with a variety of circumstances to say, is the bad in this person's life due to their sin? You know, on the one hand, can bad things happen as a result of sin? Can physical maladies happen as a result of sin? Clearly, the answer biblically is yes. On the other hand, is every physical malady, every physical disease, every sickness we go through the result of sin? Personal sin, I should say. And the answer there is no. We find both are true. Again, we can go to the book of Job and find a man who's being tried with many different circumstances, some of which are physical maladies, and yet God makes it clear it's not because of his sin. That's the question that's being asked here is there must be some kind of judgment from God. So is it judgment against his parents or is it judgment against this man that he's been blind since he was born? And yet notice Jesus' answer in verse 3. Neither hath this man sinned nor his parents, but that the works of God should be made manifest in him. This man's blindness is not the result of his personal sin. It's not the result of his parents' sin. Rather, it is a platform for God's glory to be displayed, for God's works to be seen. And once again, it's just a simple reminder for us that God can take all kinds of circumstances that in his sovereignty he allows into our lives that we may view as bad things, we may view as difficult things, but God in his wisdom intends to use for his name's sake, for his glory's sake. After addressing this matter by saying, actually, this is just so God's work can be displayed, Jesus does something incredibly curious. He spits on the ground, makes clay of the dust and the spit, puts it on the man's eyes, and tells him to go wash in the pool of Siloam. Again, this isn't some kind of natural medicine taking place. If anything, this is a wonderful object lesson for this man who can't see that something is on his eyes. He needs to go into the water to wash it off. But it is not that action. It is the faith that drives that action that allows the miraculous to occur because as the text continues, the man does follow through. He believes and obeys the instructions given and wonderfully, he's healed. I've tried to think through this in my mind, and admittedly, I can't get it. But as I work through the text this week, I'm like, what would that be like? To have never seen, never seen, and now because he's met Jesus. Because he has simply gone to this pool, dunked under as Jesus told him to do, washed himself, he sees for the first time. What an incredible miracle done by the Messiah, Jesus Christ. 
it serves importantly as a wonderful metaphor for what's taking place here as well. The miracle is the metaphor for Jesus' interaction with the religious leaders here throughout the remainder of the text. So we start by pointing at this illustrative miracle being driven by an interesting question. But notice, secondly, it generates intriguing conversation in verses 8 through 12. In verses 8 through 12, talk starts to happen. We expect this. We get this. People are going, isn't this the guy who was blind and begged? Some people are like, yeah, that's him. Others, perhaps like me, maybe like you as well, are like, I, I think so. Ines is almost like, I'm not quite sure, but I think that's the guy. I, I, I'm not sure, but I, I think so. And the guy says, I am he. I am the one who was blind. But now I see, and of course, the questions come. Why did this happen? In essence, he's saying, I met a man named Jesus. Here's what he did. Again, you go, so where is this guy? That unfolds in verses 8 through 12. Where is this guy? Where did he go? And the man says, I don't know. I mean, again, you can picture this kind of thing taking place. Here's the guy who's been blind since birth. He now sees. Everybody's going, I I think that guy is him. He says, I am. Well, Jesus did this. Where is Jesus? But he doesn't know. What do they do now? Well, in their society, what much of what we would understand in the Gospels, they are like, well, let's get the religious leaders involved, of course. Let's see what they have to say about this. This miracle that was driven by an interesting question generated this intriguing, understandable conversation continues third with unbelieving rejection. It continues with unbelieving rejection in verses 13 to 23. I wish I could say, I'm surprised. I wish I could see you guys going, I can't believe they won't get it. But as you've been through the scriptures over and over, and even in just the last few weeks as we've watched Jesus engage the religious leaders, you're probably not surprised. It should shock us, though, that here is another miracle on display. Here is another demonstration of who Jesus is. Why did God communicate? For a purpose. Belief. And yet when you work through the text here, the very people that claim to worship God, that do function in the temple, will not believe in spite of yet another miracle. They see Jesus as a threat to their belief and their religious system. We can summarize the rejection through two simple statements. One, in verses 16 and 17, we could say it this way. He's a sinner. He dishonored our Sabbath. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, this guy says he's been healed. He can see now. He's a, Jesus is a sinner. He dishonored our Sabbath. You look there, verse 16. Therefore said some of the Pharisees, this man, speaking of Jesus, is not of God because he keepeth not the Sabbath day. Others said, How can a man that is a sinner do such miracles? You you feel the pull there? The Pharisees are real quick with their indictment. Jesus is a sinner. Like, ooh, I shouldn't say that. But that's their declaration. He didn't keep the Sabbath. Yeah, he did good. He healed this man. But he did it on the Sabbath. And others are like, well, how could a sinner do that? Good question, right? He dishonored our Sabbath. 
there was a division among them, then to verse 16 says, they said unto the blind man again, what sayest thou of him that he hath opened their eyes? This man who is healed says, he's a prophet. Right statement. He's a prophet of Deuteronomy 18. He's the prophet that Israel was looking for in their Messiah. But in essence, the Pharisees don't care what he did. They care about when he did it. They're blind to the identity and ability of Jesus Christ as their Messiah. Not only do they say Jesus is a sinner, he dishonored our Sabbath. Secondly, they say to this man, you're a liar and we doubt your story. You're a liar. We don't believe you in verses 18 to 23. We've questioned whether this man was really the blind beggar. Now we doubt him. He probably wasn't blind. Let's go ask his parents is the idea of what's taking place in the text. The man's parents note, this is our son, and he was born blind. However, we see something incredibly sad within the text. Because while they have said, yes, this guy who's healed, who now sees, is our son, and he was born blind, they're scared of the religious system at play. They understand the stakes that will happen if they at all identify or give credibility to Jesus Christ. Look with me at verse 21. Parents are speaking. By what means he now seeth, we know not. Or who hath opened his eyes, we know not. He's of age. Ask him. He shall speak for himself. These words spake his parents because they feared the Jews. For the Jews had agreed already that if any man did confess that he was Christ, he should be put out of the synagogue to recognize that Jesus might be that anointed one, that Jesus might be the Messiah, meant societal and spiritual excommunication. You can't side with Jesus, or you're out of our system. You're a societal outcast. That's what's at play for the parents. And so they're hedging their language, saying, this is our son, but we don't know who, we don't know how. He's plenty old enough You ask him. Again, keep in mind it's a recurrent theme through the Gospels where Jesus asserts that those who follow me will be rejected. And the sad reality is that the very people of God, the very religious leaders of the people of God, would not recognize Jesus as their Messiah either. They would continue just as much to reject him as well. And so those who would truly believe on Jesus Christ, truly follow, would be hated, would be outcasts. In fact, just a few chapters from now in the Gospel of John, John will, or Jesus will tell his followers, before they ever hated you, they hated me. Understand, that's part of following me, Jesus will say. You will be rejected. It was true for a man who's been miraculously healed here in the text. We're going to see that in just a moment. But can I remind you that you and I are not exempt from this today. If you believe in the exclusivity of salvation through Jesus Christ alone, by faith alone, there are many religious people and many unbelieving people who will not tolerate you. will tolerate everything else except an exclusive message. And yet, realize again, Jesus is the one speaking here. There's a preacher who says it this way, we shouldn't marvel 
at the fact that Jesus said there's only one way. Like, we're going to question that. We should marvel that God gave us a way at all. Not to go, well, you know what, that's awfully narrow. I can't believe God would only say through faith in Jesus Christ. No, on the other hand, we should be astounded that in spite of our sinfulness, God says, I will make a way. It's through my son. But again, realize that with unsaved family members, perhaps you experienced it across Thanksgiving, or unbelieving co-workers, or perhaps hostile neighbors, I don't know. There are going to be people who look and say, you're so narrow-minded, you're so foolish. I can't believe you would think. And yet nothing was different all the way back here for a man who had been healed. He had been blind and now he sees. Evidence doesn't make the difference. It's not like, well, you know what, if God would just do something today that I'm sure people would believe. In John 6, he fed 5,000 people from five loaves, two fish. Was it enough? No. Here, he takes a man who's been blind since birth. Everybody's going, well, this must be some kind of sin. And Jesus is like, no, it's just so you can see the power of God on display. He heals the man. They're like, ooh, he did that on the Sabbath. They won't believe. This illustrative miracle was driven by an interesting question. It generated an intriguing conversation. It continued with unbelieving rejection. And fourth, it advances with a fascinating confrontation. Verses 24 to 34. A fascinating confrontation. Last week in John 8, we briefly noted that after Jesus says he's the light of the world, there are these religious leaders, these Pharisees, who are like, your testimony is not true. There's not enough witnesses. I find it ironic to think about that when we get here because the witness list is only growing. Okay, Jesus, in essence, said, I don't need more witnesses. God the Father has made this true. But whether you go to the woman at the well in John chapter 4 or Nicodemus in John chapter 3 or some of the multitude who were fed in John chapter 6 or a blind man here, there's never going to be enough witnesses for them to get it until they just simply yield their heart and believe to Jesus Christ. The witnesses are increasing, but the rejection remains unchanged. In verse 24, they go to this man in what sounds very spiritual, give praise to God. In essence saying, rather than Jesus, give praise to God, assent that he's true. It's almost like us saying, well, swear on the Bible. Like that's going to somehow make us tell the truth or not tell the truth. It's either true or it's not true. So give praise to God. In essence, don't give any credibility to Jesus. He's a sinner. Give praise to God. Listen to the man's response in verse 25 and the subsequent exchange with the Pharisees. He answered and said, whether he be a sinner or no, I know not. One thing I know, that whereas I was blind, now I see. This guy has very simple faith, which should be wonderfully refreshing for us. It's like, I don't understand all that's at play, but I do know this. I was blind, and by implication, after meeting this man, after doing what he said, I now see. His Christology is rather immature, but what he does know is right. He's believed on Jesus Christ to follow what Jesus has said. Then they said to him again, what did he to thee? How opened he thine eyes? 
Like, okay, well, explain it to us. Make sense of this. And I love what takes place in this fascinating conversation. I told you already. You did not hear. Wherefore, would ye hear it again? Will ye also be his disciples? Right? I mean, imagine this. These are respected religious leaders of the day. And he's like, you want me to tell you again? I already told you everything that I know. If I tell you again, are you going to believe this time? Are you going to become a disciple of his, like a follower of his? What do you think the answer to that question is? Obviously not. This angers the religious leaders. They're never going to be disciples of Jesus. Who do they follow as you continue reading in the text? They assert that they follow Moses. Funny how they keep going back to that. We saw that all the way back in John chapter 6. They follow Moses. So listen to the man's retort in verse 32. Since the world was began, it was not heard that any man opened the eyes of one that was born blind. If this man were not of God, he could do nothing. You say God doesn't hear sinners, but obviously God hears this man. This has never before happened in the history of the world, but now it has occurred. If this man weren't from God, he couldn't do this. It's awfully hard to argue with that kind of logic, both biblically and intellectually. Verse 34, what do they do? You're a sinner too. You can't be our teacher. You're a sinner too. And they cast him out of the synagogue. It's like, you know what? Push reason aside. We, we hit this so many times in our study through Mark and even in our study through Acts. If they're not going to come to the point of faith, they might as well just eliminate the opposition. Get out of here. Let's get you out. It's, it's like the bully on the playground who won't get his way. You'll leave my territory if you won't agree with me. And they push the man out of the synagogue. He's paid a price for believing on Jesus, but it is certainly worth it. Christ has changed his life. wonder if the same could be said of you and I. Again, Jesus clearly teaches. It gets reiterated through the epistles. I think of 1 Peter 4, we're told that all that will live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. That all is a big all. It's not like all but Dan Brapson or all but you can put your name in there. There are going to be people who absolutely don't like you, disagree with you, reject what you have to say, no matter how patient, no matter how reasonable you are. Because the God of this world, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4, has blinded their eyes that they might not believe. That's why. It's not personal. You, you shouldn't be angry with them. They are blind like you used to be if you know Jesus Christ as your Savior. We see it clearly on display here in the text. But I wonder if you see it in life sometimes. If you're willing to point to Jesus Christ where people are like, no, I, I can't buy that. I reject that. Come on. You really believe that? I mean, people used to believe that kind of stuff, but we've moved so far from that in society today. That's so narrow-minded. That's so restrictive. Well, actually, that's what God himself, Jesus himself said. Another one wonderful reminder for us that rejection may come. It's okay. Follow him anyway. Fifth, this illustrative miracle climaxes with a believing salvation. It climaxes with a believing salvation. 
I love the fact here that Jesus seeks the outcast. He seeks the outcast. You know, again, you, you look at John 3, he meets Nicodemus at night. You look at John 4, he goes to the Samaritan woman at the well, and she's like, why are you talking to me? Here's this man who, in spite of having his life radically changed, has now been cast out. And yet, when you get to verse 35, Jesus hears that's happened. He finds the man, and he asks him this very important question. Dost thou believe on the Son of God? Do you believe on the Son of God? Again, he's believed enough to obey and to be physically healed, but Jesus is raising a more important question here. The man answers, says, who is he, Lord, that I might believe on him? You see him already placing himself under Jesus Christ as Lord, as the one who is master. He's like, well, Lord, tell me who he is that I might believe on him. I like the, both the content of Jesus' words, but also the irony of his words. Jesus said unto him, verse 37, thou hast both seen him, and it is he that talketh with thee. I find it ironic because Jesus says, you've seen him. This is a man who at the start of the chapter had never seen anything. And yet he's able to say, you have seen the Son of God. Something we can't say, but a man who's only seen for a very short time in his life. Jesus can say, you've seen him, and it's the one who's now talking to you. The man gives what should be the only right response. It is the purpose for which God communicated with us. Lord, I believe. And if there was any doubt as to the genuine nature of his faith, what does the text say next? He worshipped him. He worshipped him. He, he just, by the way, broke another major rule for the religious leaders. He just worshipped a man? He just worshiped Jesus, this one who they believe is a sinner. We'd say, yeah, but it's only right. It's God in the flesh that he's believed on and worshiped. Jesus said, verse 39, for judgment I am come into this world, that they which see not might see, and that they which see might be made blind. You see, there is only two ways with Jesus. Either those who are spiritually blind end up seeing because they believe on Jesus, or those who physically can see are spiritually blind because they will never believe on Jesus. Jesus is going to make that distinction all the more clear in our final point under this illustrative miracle sixth. It concludes with an ironic distinction. It concludes with an ironic distinction. Some of the Pharisees which were with him heard these words, said unto him, Are we blind also because of what Jesus just said? Jesus said unto them, If ye were blind, speaking of physical blindness, you would have no sin. But now you say, We see, therefore your sin remaineth. Again, Jesus is speaking in a cloaked fashion to point out their sinfulness because they will not believe. The blind man now sees, the seeing men are blind because skeptics will never see. These men are lost in their sin. They're condemned because of their sin. The only way a skeptic sees is if he yields to grace. If he says, here's what Christ has done. I'm believing on him alone. 
That is the only way. This illustrative miracle concludes with an ironic distinction. But we move from that illustrative miracle to this restrictive message here in John chapter 10. Again, I would have you note, there's no break in the dialogue. Chapters are a wonderful thing. They help us find our text much, much more quickly today. But Jesus, as he's engaging the religious leaders, is going to say, now truly, truly, let me tell you this parable. Let me speak with these illustrations. And he's going to use this illustration of shepherding in a sheepfold to help them comprehend what he is saying, to give a picture that communicates the truth. One of the pictures that he uses points to his loving care of people. His loving care of people. That's Jesus as shepherd. We'll see that next week. The other points to his exclusive claim as the only means of coming to God. There is only one way that you get underneath the shepherd's care, and that is to go through the door, to enter the sheepfold, to become one of his flock, whereby he will then let you in out, he will let you in, he will take care of life for you as your shepherd. Again, as we come to John 10, particularly verses 7 and 10, let's look briefly at this restrictive message. First, he uses the shepherding imagery of a single gate. Verse 7, then Jesus said unto them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, I am the door of the sheep. He's explaining what he's already said back in verses 1 through 6 because they're not getting it. We're going to touch that more next week. But Jesus takes this familiar imagery of shepherding, something that's not real familiar to us, I have to speak carefully here because most of what I understand I have done only by reading. Maybe you have more experience, but most of us don't live that way. Their culture, different. Like we can look through Israel's history pretty quickly and go, Moses, 40 years as a shepherd. I think he's got experience. David, shepherd. I think he's got experience. You and me, not so much. Or at least I'll say me, maybe you. Okay? But Jesus uses that analogy to say, I'm the door of the sheep. And as we understand things during that time frame, they would begin to build sheepfolds to protect the flock at night, often done by rock being piled up as a wall by which then they could put the sheep into that walled-in area. And rather than have a physical gate like wood or something like that like we would today, they would just simply leave an opening and then the door of the sheep who was a person could be the shepherd, would lay down in that entrance to be able to permit access or deny access, depending on what it was or who it was that was trying to get in. Jesus is making the point, I am the only means of entering God's flock. There is no other way to become part of God's family than through me, Jesus will say. It echoes the final I am that we'll look at ahead in John 14, verse 6, where Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. It echoes the message of the apostles in the book of Acts, particularly Acts chapter 4, verse 12. There is no other name given among men, under heaven, given among men, whereby we must be saved. In spite of the culture around us, Jesus is saying, he is is the only way. And rather, again, than being upset that God would say there's only one way, we should glory and rejoice in the fact that he's provided 
a way, a perfect way. When we begin to think there are other ways, we don't, we fail to understand the gravity of our sin problem. The only thing, the only one who could take care of my sin problem and yours is someone who is absolutely perfect, who loves enough that he's willing to give his life, and who's powerful enough that he can raise it again. If we lose any of those things, if we lose any of those things, we have an inferior Savior. Jesus alone is the only way. He says that here using the shepherding imagery of a single gate. He notes the history of Israel's leaders, verse 8, and he's already touched this earlier in John 10, but he says in verse 8, all that ever came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not hear them. We'll touch this more next Sunday, but in Israel's spiritual and political history, they had been uh, imposters and failures of leaders. Those who claimed to bring deliverance, to bring, uh, to give rescue, those who set themselves up as spiritual authorities, even as we've seen in the text in John 9 once more, they diverted attention to themselves, but they didn't bring rescue. They only brought further ruin. If you want to do some reading to prepare for next week, go read Ezekiel 34. Because God told his people that those shepherds, those other leaders, would fail and had failed. That they lived selfishly for themselves. But there in Ezekiel 34, God gives incredible hope to say that one day he will send the perfect shepherd. Send the perfect shepherd. And we're reading that perfect shepherd's words himself here in John chapter 10. The blind, in essence, were leading the blind until Jesus came. It's a good reminder for us by way of application. People always make poor substitutes for God. God and his wonderful love gives us great relationships here on this earth. There are many very good relationships represented in this room. There are certainly many more even beyond this room. But in spite of no matter how good a relationship ever is, people are always a bad substitute for God. If Israel followed their spiritual leaders and did not end at God, they ended in failure. If Israel followed their political leaders but did not follow God, they ended in failure. Just look through their history. David was a good king, a man after God's own heart. He failed. Solomon was the wisest man to have ever lived. He failed. And we could go example after example after example. Jesus here is reminding there have been others, but in essence they brought nothing but destruction. Both people and we could also say possessions make poor substitutes for God. So in giving the restrictive message, he uses the shepherding imagery of a single gate. He notes the recent history of Israel's leaders. And then he points to the exclusive security of himself. I am the door. By me, if any man enter in, he shall be saved. He shall go in and out and find pasture. In other words, I'll let you in. You're now part of the flock. I'll let you back out when it's time to be led to go to pasture because I'm leading you anyway. But you will be cared for. You will have what's needed. Again, I go back in my mind to the illustration I started with of a dog. It's like you do realize as a pet, life is good for you as a pet when you're home. I put food for you in your bowl. Your life is taken care of. You want to go live it on your own. You want to try to do things your way. It's a disaster. Okay? Jesus is saying, I am the only means of entering God's flock. If you will come in, you will be saved. 
You will be rescued. You will be cared for. You will be provided for. But Jesus is saying there is no other way. He alone is the door. As we wrap things up this morning, let me challenge all of us. We either take Jesus at his word or we don't. We either take Jesus at his word or we don't. We don't get the opportunity. It would be absolutely inappropriate to tell God what he must provide for us or how he must provide it. God has said Jesus is the only way. Faith in him is the only way. It does not matter how many friends, how many neighbors, how many family members, how many coworkers come and say, I can't imagine that God wouldn't let a good person who was honestly seeking him somehow not to go to heaven. That's simply a way of saying, I'm going to work around what you've told me Jesus said. I'm going to work around what Jesus actually said in the word. Well, there are just people in other religions, and they're really trying to, to follow whatever they view God as. It doesn't work. The message that we've been given, if we are truly saved, is an exclusive message. We don't redefine what Jesus said. And again, I realize as I'm saying that, that when we share that message, how is it received? By some, by some, perhaps the Spirit of God works, opens eyes, and faith follows. But there are many, many, there are many here in the text, there are many in our world today, that are like, I can't view God that way. I won't view God that way. I don't think there is a God. My concept of God is that if I just do enough good stuff, he'll certainly be pleased because I can't imagine God doing anything else. Well, then you don't know him because the wonderful thing biblically about what God has told him about himself is you don't do anything to earn his favor. He in mercy shows you favor through his son. He loves you before you ever loved him. He simply tells you that it is by faith that you are saved. It is this gift of God. It's not of works, lest any man should boast. Again, I'd be remiss if I didn't stop to just say, if you're here this morning and you've never actually put your faith in Jesus Christ for salvation, today is the day. It is the day you should say, God, I am a sinner who's disobeyed you, who deserves judgment from you. But I realize Jesus is the only way of being saved. He said it here in the text. He died on the cross for your sins. He rose again. God, I'm just going to believe and ask Jesus to save me. That's what you need to do today. Again, there are many here who would say, Pastor, I've, I've done that. Like I understand that. But I would ask you, are you willing to stand for him on his words in a hostile, pluralistic culture that wants to try to redefine or reimagine or think through in another way. Well, there, there's, I just can't conceive of God in that way. To be able to say either we conceive of God the way that he has communicated himself in his word, or we don't. And the moment we don't, we make ourselves the authority. We need to be simple enough. I mean, the man here is like, I don't know everything, but I do know this. I was blind. Now I see. Jesus says, I'm the son of God. And he says, 
I believe, and he worships. It's that simple. Okay? So for us, we're either saying, listen, this is all I have to offer you. I will share with you biblical truth because I'm not smart enough. My arguments aren't advanced enough. And frankly, you're too blind anyway. So I'm just going to give you the word and ask God to work. There's only one way to God. It's through the door of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, as we go to this text, we again marvel at the miracle that Jesus Christ accomplished in healing a man who'd been blind from birth. And yet, Lord, we see in that miracle this exchange by which Jesus points to himself as the only means of coming into your care, the only means of being saved. Lord, if there's one here this morning who's not sure of their spiritual standing before you, I pray that today would be the day of their salvation where they acknowledge their sin and believe on Christ alone. Lord, again, I realize we are living at a time in our country here where it's becoming less and less acceptable to point to Jesus as the only way. And yet, Lord, in the midst of that rejection, I pray that we would have boldness to make the message all the more clear that you've only given us one way to come to you, and it is through your Son, Jesus Christ. That, Lord, we might be able to be lights for you, pointing people to you so that as your Spirit works through your Word, you draw people to yourself. Lord, again, we realize that there may be rejection with it. We saw it clearly on display in the text. We listen to it in Jesus' words. And so, Lord, when that occurs, we ask you for grace that we might continue to serve you anyway. It's in Jesus' name I pray.